And here we come to basically the, the, the end of the fourth movement. Uh, as we move into the rest of 15 and chapter 16, Paul will conclude with final greetings. But you see that little Trinitarian doxology at the end that cues us into the end. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing who? Messiah, Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit that your hope may abound, may abound in doing these things that the gospel not only instructs us to do, but empowers us to do. To be unified in Christ. This is Paul's third crack. I hope you're getting a little bit bored. This is his third crack at saying, hey church, hey Christians, hey Jesus people, try this one on for size. Why don't you guys have some unity together on these disputable matters so that, you know, your, your friends who you love who aren't Christians, you know, the ones that you love who aren't projects, but you really love them, might actually look at the church and go, wow, the church is amazing. People love each other there, really love each other there, not in some superficial Sunday collared shirt bolo tie kind of way, but baggage and brokenness and wounds and realness kind of way. They love each other there differently than I have ever seen. Different cultures, different backgrounds, different races, different sides of the political whatever, different musical preferences, disputable matters, and yet they love one another like we've never seen. The unity of the church is part of the reason I, I love this last week's celebration of All Hallows' Eve. Some of you might call it Halloween. Have you heard of it? I love it. It's my kid's favorite holiday, and perhaps this is a great example because we are talking about disputable matters. Some of you, by conscience, may not celebrate, and I, by compulsion, do. Indeed, following in the footsteps of many of the great reformers, there's nothing more beautiful and gospel-centered than the weakest of the weak, the children of the children, the smallest of the small, dressing up as scary things to mock the devil, who we know ultimately has been bound as the strong man, and although we are tempted and face trials, he has no power. Halloween is a night of unity. I mean, we're down on Don Gaspar, and the neighborhood is united. Doors are open. People are standing outside giving away free candy. I mean, it's a picture of heaven, people. <laughs> but nothing was more united during my Halloween Eve than my children and their friends. United like a little gang, a little mafioso group in getting as much candy as quickly as possible and hitting every single house. Some got hit twice and they just changed masks. I did. I felt like I was, I mean, they were moving so fast. They were so organized. Their, their organized crime unit was so effective. I felt like I was an, an extra in The Godfather, you know, just I could barely keep up with these kids. And yet as unity was displayed, you, always see, you also see pictures of disunity. Two rival groups of kids approaching the same house at the same time. Or perhaps two children reaching for the same piece of candy at the same time. If you ever want to test whether or not Paul's theory is true, that we are all sinners in need of God's grace, then get two kids and say, there's only one piece of candy between the two of you. 
unity and disunity, and that's the church. And that's why Paul comes back a third time to exhort us, church, we must be unified. That is what the church is. Not that we agree on everything, not that we don't have issues, not that we don't work out those issues together, we're a family, but that we do that very thing. And by necessity, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people is by necessity a unified people. There is no church where we are not unified. As I said last week, you you might have a country club. You might have an Elks Lodge. You might have Rotary. You might have Phi, Kappa, Beta, Sigma, Delta, whatever. But you don't have a church unless you have diverse people who disagree and dispute on disputable matters, yet unified in the one thing, Christ healthy in the grace of Jesus and united like one huge big church Voltron to go out into Santa Fe and do the work of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus prayed for. In John chapter 17, as he began his priestly ministry, he now intercedes for you, seated at the right hand of God the Father. As he began his priestly ministry before the cross in John 17, what did he pray? The heart of his prayer was, Father, make them one as you and I were one. And yet we are so easily divided. Divided on disputable matters. And so I'm going to say a third week in a row, because it's important. Disputable matters are not those things which the Bible clearly and explicitly calls sin or a breaking of God's law nor the things that the Bible explicitly says, you must do this to live. We're talking about issues upon which we as Christians in good conscience can disagree. For example, in the Roman church, should we eat meat, sacrifice to idols? What about, I mean, you shouldn't just throw away a good cup of wine just because some little pagan shaman prayed a blessing over it. For crying out loud, we're free in the gospel. You and I know full well that that little shaman prayer doesn't, you know, create some molecular, you know, demonic thing in the cup and the liquid. Well, what about days? What about the calendar? What about the Jewish feasts and festivals that were so dear to the heart and the culture of these Jewish believers who had believed on the name of Messiah, Jesus? We can go into a million other things. Preferences for how we all dress. Preferences for the music we listen to. Preferences for what kind of schooling you do with your kids or how you raise your kids or exactly what your dynamics look like in your marriage. There are, there are constructs, right? Husbands, serve and love your wives. Wives do the same, submit to one another in love. But within that, there are disputable matters. The problem is when we see someone doing something we don't like, and we, you know, he said, she said, can you believe how they showed up to church, or they did that, or I, and what happens is this, we form an opinion. And when we form an opinion, we put that brother, that sister in a box, which means we make them other, we push them away, we alienate them, we write them off. And so we might be cordial at church, right? Because that's what you're supposed to do. But you know, you see him walking in the room and you're like, I think I'll go to the coffee now. And I want us to consider as we go through this text, who are those people in the church who annoy you? Who do things that frustrate you? 
who don't have your views, who you've thought from time to time, maybe we won't hang out again. Because the Apostle Paul tells us we cannot do that. That when we do that, when we refuse to be unified across disputable matters, in the undisputable matter of the grace of God in Christ, we are actually telling the world a lie about the story of God. So I want us to think, and I want myself to think, and I've been doing it all week, and I'm tired of doing it, now it's your turn. Where do we all need to change here? Where do we need the Holy Spirit to come in and be like, man, your preference is great, and I understand that's, that's your background and your culture and how you were born and the whole deal, but you don't get to lord that over people as, as dogma. Where do we need the Spirit to do the work of conviction on our lives, to lead us to repentance on our, on our little idols, our respectable sins? Our functional saviors. Because when it comes to the church, we must unite. We must be all in. All in for Christ vertically and all in for each other horizontally. And I think that's Paul's main point. As he puts a cherry on top of this Romans 14 to 15, 13. This three-part section on unity. Be all in because you are all in Christ. Three things that the apostle does here, I think I said in the last service, there's obviously three things here because I'm a pastor and could there be more or less than that? No. But I really think there are three things. First of all, our, our path in Christ, his example to us, our power in Christ, as John said yesterday at our leadership training, we have a new motive, a new heart. So our path, our power, and lastly, God's great and glorious plan for us all in Christ. So our path, in Christ. Jesus is our example. That is what Paul was getting at before verse 8 here. The weak and the strong. Strong meaning my conscience is not bound. I'm free. I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Wine that was blessed by a shaman. I don't need to practice all the days. I'm free because God made all things good and all I need is Christ. Or weak meaning not that you have weak faith but that your conscience might be bound on certain things. And we're all a combination of both of those. The weak and the strong need a Savior who is both weak and strong and in whose weakness we have strength. I just want you to appreciate the beauty of this. Anathema to the gods of the pantheon of ancient Rome. A kick in the shin to Zeus. Weakness? you got to be kidding me. It's all about strength. It's all about Him. It's all about the God. It's all about Him pleasing Himself for His own motives and, you know, come what may with the people on earth. And Paul says, no, our example is Christ. For the weak and the strong, He was both weak and strong, that He might be our Savior. We need His example because we're not great at doing this Romans 14 through 15 thing. Paul must know that, which is why he spends so much time on it. This is the, the outworking of chapters 1 through 3, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That apart from God's intervening sovereign grace, we would ultimately all be believers of that same whispered lie in the garden. Did God really say? I could be my own God. I can make my own way. We would, 
ultimately be lovers of self more than any other thing, even if we prettied it up with the makeup of what's acceptable and, quote, moral in this culture. Paul wants to challenge us here. You are made in the image of God. And when we walk in disunity, we don't walk in seeing our brothers and sisters as image bearers of God, but instead objects of use. To put it this way, how we live with those we disagree with reveals all. How we live with those we disagree with reveals all. In Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus. They were frustrated that he wasn't following the commandments and traditions that were obviously required by the religion at the time, hand washing and certain other purity rituals. Why aren't your disciples doing what we do? Because if you do this, then surely God will hear us and send Braveheart down to kick the Romans out of Israel. Jesus says, oh man, how good you guys are at getting it cleaned up on the outside. Looking unified around rules and religion. How good you are at being whitewashed tombs. But know this, it's not hand washing that does anything for you. It's all a matter of the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the hands act. And so Paul says to the strong, again, if you think you're strong, guess what? You have an obligation. That is, how could it be any other way if the grace of God has touched you in your weakness and made you strong, that now that you are strong, you have an obligation to bear with the weak? How many times has the Apostle Paul said, to his readers in the New Testament, I am free. I'm free in the gospel. If I want to use the church calendar, great. If I don't, fine. If I want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, I will. But you know what? If I'm around people that that might cause to stumble, I won't. Paul is as free as they come in the gospel. And yet, what does he say repeatedly? He says, I am free, but I am in chains. I am free from all the little g-gods of the world making their demands upon me. I am free in the death and resurrection of Christ. And now I am free so that I can be a bondservant to Christ. I am free to serve. This is the crux of what it means to bear with. These are strong words. I can barely bear with myself. I might just walk into another room and turn some music on, not have to deal with it. But to bear with, this means to long suffer. It means when we don't like what's going on with somebody, with some brother and sister in the church, we don't just change the channel. That we don't just ghost each other. That we don't just do the Irish adios and sneak out of the party unnoticed and unscathed. No, it means that we exercise compassion. And deference, and this is really hard to do. Compassion is one of my favorite Bible words. It means to suffer with. Compassion, with suffering. To enter into the brokenness of another, to walk a mile in their shoes. I first heard this great story from my parents, and many of you know it. It's from Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Pastors. Now, but I really need that book. I got two and a half habits on lock. He tells a story about a man 
on a plane with two kids and they're just rowdy as can be. Cubby's there getting his you know, seat kicked on the plane and I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I'm usually pretty good at not getting too annoyed in life, but my level of annoyance tolerance on planes is like this big. Like everybody be following the rules, like you took your shoes off, I'm calling the stewardess. And, you know, there's Covey and the kids are throwing peanuts and they're loud and one kid's crying and his thing is like, what is this dad doing? The dad and his two kids. This guy needs to get in line. He needs to learn what it means to discipline your kids. And, you know, and then he abstracts it up to all the societal ills of, you know, kids these days are so disobedient and the world's falling apart and, you know, that whole deal. Finally, the plane stops and he can take it no longer. So he turns around and kind of gives the dad, you know, an appropriate and helpful correcting scowl. Mmm, you know. And all of a sudden, this father's eyes begin to fill with tears. And he says to Covey, he goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for how rowdy these children are. You know, we just, we just got back from their mother's funeral. And they don't know how to handle themselves. And to be honest, neither do I. The perspective changes everything. To hear the story, to know the story, to enter into the suffering means that we can bear with. Because it's really simple, Paul says. It's so simple, but it's so hard. It's so simple. You want to know how to be unified as a church? Here we go. Stop trying to please yourself. Stop trying to please yourself. Oh, this is so hard for, for me and for you because I am myself. And I feel all the things about myself deeply when I feel them. I want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, you know, 0 for 3, but I'm working on it. It's so simple. Stop trying to please yourself. It's so hard, but I do know this. I know in, in my relationships, I know in my, my marriage, I know with my kids, and in family, community with you all, that when I will just step back for a hot minute, from what I want, what I need, from the idol of me-ism, you know. Could just change the words in that song earlier. It's all about me. I mean, that would be like the anthem of a generation. When I can just stop that for a minute, when I seek to please my neighbor for their own good, you know what? It's awesome. It's so full of joy. You know, when I, when I do that in my, when my marriage, when I, when I think about Caitlin before I think about myself, those six and a half times a year when that happens? But it's really good, man. It's really joyful. It really makes me more human, not less, not like, oh, now I gave up my power. That stinks. No, now power made perfect in weakness and there's more joy and there's more glory to being one flesh. So how do we do this? Well, we welcome each other. We truly welcome each other. And you're only going to welcome each other if you first see yourselves as the welcomed ones. We must first understand ourselves in the power of Christ and the grace of God as the welcome ones. And welcoming doesn't mean, okay, fine, I welcome you. You know, sometimes my, my girls will get into a little disagreement and it's like, all right, you need to apologize to each other. And it's like, I'm sorry. And you're like, oh, how super believable. Yeah. And yet, as adults, we do the same thing all the time. We just do it inside. At least kids are honest. A bunch of liars. 
So fine doesn't mean, welcoming doesn't mean, okay, fine, I'll welcome someone I disagree with. Sure. No, it means to invite them into your home, to hear their story, to care about the things that they've gone through that shape both their strength and their weakness. Strength and maturity in the church means this, I'm okay with not everyone being like me. I'm okay with not everyone being like me. And man, this is a witness to the world because to welcome those that we have disputable matters with is is the anti-self-justification. And we're the ones who have just spent all these weeks in Romans hearing and being reminded that we are justified, made righteous, made holy, set apart, new status adopted by Christ, not our own works. This welcoming is the anti-my rights. And thank God Jesus didn't claim His. Thank God Jesus, when He went to the cross and became weak and lowly and humiliated for us all, the Bible tells us He could have called down a legion of angels to go full Schwarzenegger in commando on everybody. That was His right as the divine King of the universe. And what did He do? He laid down His rights. He laid down his life, bloody and naked and ashamed for his neighbor. For the glory of God instead of his own self-justification. So listen, the way to make our human relationships healthy, the way to make our human relationships healthy and and better is actually for for our human relationships to be about something bigger than that. To not find our identity in, in our own feelings subjectively, to not find our identity in in all these other interactions, but in the glory of God by welcoming one another. The result is an active unity, an active and engaged unity whereby we commit to building each other up, to building bridges instead of burning them. Because look, you guys, we can't be effective for Jesus in Santa Fe. We love the people of Santa Fe. We love the city. We love all of its weirdness and warts and glory and beauty. We we love how layered it is and how frustrating and awesome it is. We love the fact that when someone comes here and goes, oh man, Santa Fe is so cool, we're like, yeah, it is, and please don't mess it up. We love our city, but we can do nothing for the kingdom of God in this city unless the body is working together. Jesus is the king and the head of his church. He is sending signals to the rest of the body, and the body needs to move. I was awestruck recently by this marathon runner. Some of you heard of this, Kipchoge. Can't remember his first name. Lee knows it. But this guy's unbelievable. He ran the first marathon under two hours. A marathon under two hours. They thought it was humanly impossible to do. And there's all these rules about is it you know an official world record time? I don't care. It's official to me. He didn't have any help. He had people running in front of him and alongside of him and lasers on the road and the whole deal, but he ran the two-hour marathon. They said, well, he had these special Nikes. I don't care if he had springs in his shoes and he was wearing your great aunt's Z-coils. The dude ran a marathon in under two hours. That only works if the whole body is working together. If the hand looks at the foot and goes, I don't think so. I don't like what you do. Hands over here flailing about, the foot's trying to run. Then we walk around as this like 80-foot-tall baby in Santa Fe, all, you know, torpe and ridiculous, and the world looks on and goes, wow, that's the church? I definitely want to go be a part of that. 
not. So we don't need to just manage our expectations here, folks. We need a a resurrection of our expectations. We need a rebirth. We come with our preferences to so many things in the world. You know, I go to a restaurant and I'm going to get what I want to eat. But friends, this is not a restaurant. We are not customers here. You are not customers here. We are part of a body. That's why Paul quotes from Psalm 69, which has the people of Israel crying out to God because their enemies have come down upon them, enemies from without, but especially enemies from within. And God says in Psalm 69, look, don't you worry. The Messiah will come and he will suffer on behalf of the suffering of Israel. He will become the one who leads by serving. And if Jesus wasn't a customer when he showed up, how much less should we be? Now, the beauty of this teaching, I love this. Because again, remember in the world right now especially, it's all about identity and everything. And we can't even have a rational disagreement anymore because if you disagree with me on something, you have been an affront to my core identity. Does Paul say we need to agree on everything? Absolutely not. Look at you people. Do we need to agree on everything? You know what that's called? It's called a cult. Are you in a cult? I sure hope not. Take your shrunken heads and your salt ring somewhere else. You are not in a cult. We do not need to agree on everything. No, we need to agree on the one thing. We need to agree on the one thing, and that is the person and the finished work and the lordship and the rule and the reign of Jesus, our Savior, forever. Amen. That's our path in Christ, our example. The power comes when we realize that Jesus isn't just some platonic form of what we should do. Follow the example of Christ, and eventually you'll be good enough to kind of get close enough to get enough of His goodness to you know, be brought in. Paul understands that we don't need a form. We need a fulfiller. We need one who not only lays down his life for us, but exercises his gift through us. We need an example who's also our executor. This is why Paul mentions twice that God is the God who both endures and encourages. It's grace language. It's gospel language. And as we stand here on Reformation Sunday... I thought I'd read this appropriate quote. This is our power for unity. Unity is a necessity. It's impossible in our own strength, and the power comes from here. The Reformation. The Reformation was a time when men and women went blind, staggering, drunk on the Holy Spirit because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure, distillate Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, the good news, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your own bootstraps, that good news suddenly turned out to be a flat, unifying proclamation that the saved were home before they even started. 
And the grace of God has to be drunk straight. No watering down. No ice cubes of your own design and especially no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor even the flowers that bloom in your seasons of super spirituality can be allowed to enter in to the case. So the path is in Christ, but the power is because of Christ. The message of Romans 15 and the reason Paul caps this with so much talk of Jesus is because we must see ourselves as the welcomed. Our only hope for unity is for us to realize that this is what Jesus has done for us. He became weak for our strength. He laid himself down to lift himself up. He put himself in place of the cornerstone to build up a church. And he welcomed sinners, the undeserving, the uncouth, the not yet refined, the baby Christians, the people still struggling so that we can now go and become the welcoming. And all this leads to God's great plan with Christ. And this is my favorite part of the text. My favorite part of the text is that for Paul to reconcile Jew and Gentile in the work of Christ, he must remind them that this was God's plan all along. This was God's great plan in Jesus all along to save people from every nation for himself, for his own glory. And in that we would find the fullness of our joy. Now Paul shows us this as he concludes the section. The Hebrew hearers would have recognized it. He quotes from the entire Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, the history, writings, and even the prophets. He gives us Deuteronomy and 2 Samuel, the Psalms, and back to Paul's personal favorite, Isaiah. He beckons us to have eyes to see what he says in verse 8. That all of these scriptures, all of the Old Testament was given to you now. This church and the Messiah Jesus to prove that God is truthful. That God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. That there haven't been these, these different dispensations of you know, who God is and what he does. Oh, there's Old Testament mean God and New Testament smiley Jesus with a hair straightener kissing babies. No. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And from Genesis 3.15 where he promises to crush the head of the serpent, God has been unfolding his plan of historical redemption in shadows and types that are now fulfilled in Christ. To bring in the nations, many ethnic Jews, to believe on the name of Jesus, Messiah, but also people from every tribe and tongue and nation as well. And what a plan, what a scandalous plan to bring in the undeserving even Gentiles. And this is why I commend to us that church is not boring. A friend of mine taught me this this week. Wiffem. W-I-I-F-M. Wiffem. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? This is why the gathering of God's people unifying in Christ is not boring. Because what's in it for us as we do this hard work in Jesus, is nothing less than the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth being brought to bear on our lives and our city. 
We care about justice. The born and the unborn, the young and the old, the border and the bedroom, our children and their children's children. We care about the environment because we want to have dominion and be good stewards. We care about all these things, and we should, because that's the heart of God, to care about widows and orphans, to care for the fatherless and judge the oppressors. But you understand that as we come together unified in Christ, this is the very place where God wants to send us to put that justice on display. This is the very place where people should taste and see that God is good and heaven is real. Where men and women, people of all educations, all socioeconomics, all races, can be one in something greater than themselves that can never be taken away. That's why Jesus became a servant. To tell a new story. To tell the story of a unified people in the city for the glory of God, filled with joy, that the world might watch and look and go, what is happening there? Man, those people love each other like nowhere else I've seen. So I want us to ask, what's our story going to be? Yours personally and that of our church. It's, It's amazing what God has done in this church. I want you to know, most church plants, we're a church plant. Hi, yeah, we started in 2002. Most church plants, look, don't have people this great, don't have a facility this nice, don't have as many ministries as we do after a mere 17 years. God has blessed us richly, but He is far from done. He is far from done. So what will our story be? You know, are we going to be the house that hands out pencils and pennies and paper clips? Or are we going to be the house that hands out full-size candy bars? How dare we would be stingy with something that was free for us? Mic drop. How dare we be stingy with the grace and the mercy of God on disputable matters when we're the welcomed ones and it was free for us? Let's be the ones with the full-size candy bars, the best decorations, the front doors widest open, a a pot of cider for the adults and a fire pit to sit by. Let's be defined by that story and none other. It means we need to be all in and together all in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. It is humbling Jesus, it really humbles me because I see, I see my own heart, as John Calvin said, a factory of idols. It's, it's a twisted ball of beauty and brokenness. I see areas of great growth, though, and areas of persistent need. I see where I, I, I'm strong and free and places I'm constrained, hills that I die on, disputable matters that are so unworthy of your glory in the unity that you desire. And so help us, Lord. Help us in your example, a path forward, but only because of your power. And may it, may it be the realization of your plan. May we be the church that abounds in hope and offers abounding hope to a hopeless world because this was always your plan. Diverse people, diverse cultures, together we can only
only be together because of Christ. So we ask for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.